Today, we're going to tackle the question that a lot of people are asking. Is it financially better to get married or stay single? This is the Seven Figures Podcast, smart money strategies for women with Sandy Waters, CBS News business analyst, host of the Jill on Money podcast and radio show. Jill Schlesinger is here. How are you? Great. How are you? Good. Now, Jill is on Spazano and Sandy every Wednesday. On the morning show, the radio show that I host, you give us great financial advice. Today, I thought we could bring up a conversation that came up on the morning show in our generations bit. Mm. I don't know if you ever heard our generations, but it's a conversation. We just bring up a topic and based on everybody's generation, we all have our take on it. And it's really interesting to hearing everyone's point of view based on Mm. how old they are. I bet. The conversation about marriage came up. And why they say that the marriage rates are on a decline. And no matter what age group called in, it was pretty much all about money. So I wanted to see your take on it, really. Is it more beneficial financially to be married or not to be married? Here is a typical CFP or CPA um, response to said question. You ready? Yeah. It depends. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) So, I mean, part of the problem is that most of us are not getting married specifically um, because of our finances. Yeah. Like college college debt, right? Yeah. But there are, there are some, there's some overhangs. So let's talk about like sort of generationally, what we now know is that millennials are, it's not that they're not hooking up. It's like, they're not forming their own households as early as their predecessor generations have. So meaning that they're living home longer, maybe because that college debt, maybe it's a rotten job market that they graduated into early, you know, during the recession and the, you know, soon after, Mm -hmm. but also it's um, sort of more socially acceptable to say I'm living home for a while. And so what we know is that the average millennial is delaying purchasing a home by seven years compared to the boomers seven years later. And they are delaying marriage for a few years later as well. And and I do think that's probably about some financial considerations. I don't think that most people are sitting down and saying, oh my God, if Sandy and I got married, then um, all this income would be taxed at a higher. I don't think they're going to that level. Mm. I think they're just saying, I want to feel a little bit more financially secure before I make this decision. In your opinion, because I know this is going to be another one of those depends. But if both people are walking into the relationship or maybe even just one person has college debt, do you see it best to take on that debt as a couple, that's a big debate in relationships, right? Absolutely. That's your debt. You deal with it. Yeah. And I have to tell you that there was a survey that came out that showed um, that a number of millennials said, if somebody has debt, I'm just not even dating them, like if they don't have a handle on the debt. And that kind of blew my mind. I, I really was shocked about that. So in my opinion is, yes, it depends. Yes, you should do what you want. However, I will tell you that I mar- I, I uh, interviewed a woman who wrote a book called Marriageology. Okay. And her name is Belinda Luscombe. The book is great. Okay. It really takes a lot of uh, a deep dive into the data around marriages, breakups, 
um, uh, fighting, all that stuff. And she's fantastic. I had her on my podcast and I wanted to find out about marriage and money. And I asked her this question. I said, hey, you know, it looks like all these millennials, basically, uh, they're delaying stuff. And, you know, there's a bunch who say that they don't want to pay someone else's debt off. Mm -hmm. So she said to me, you know, I think it's actually preferable that they not get married if that's really how they feel. Because in her mind, the idea that you get married and don't share your both your upside and your downside, meaning yeah. your assets and your liabilities, she thinks it's a terrible sign for the success of a relationship. Ooh. And so I was shocked because, you know, I'm always the kind of like, if it works for you, no, no problem. She goes, what kind of message is that? I'm going to marry you. Um, I'm making a good chunk of money, but like tough luck on you. You're on your own to pay off your debt. I, I'm kind of that way too. I'm like, right? how could you see your spouse struggle paying right. off their debt when you have money or you could easily help them? Now, I will say that after that that episode aired, we yeah. got some comments. And one of the big comments that I thought was interesting was not so much that the person who had more money wanted to pay it off, but that the person who had the debt didn't feel comfortable accepting the help. Oh. Interesting, right? Like, hey, I don't know. Like, it's my debt. I want to feel like I can pay it off. I don't want you to feel like you have to pay this thing off. And um, I actually recorded a little snippet for one guy to play to his fiance. Yeah. And I basically said, honey, he got the money. He's going to pay it off. Yeah. You're going to provide other things. Take the money. I would too. I'd be like, okay, thanks for helping. Right. Thanks. <laughs> but I think that, look, look, marriage and money and relationships and money, we know that you know, all of the data tell us that. It, we are bad, bad talking about this. We feel uncomfortable. So what I will tell you is I think one of the positive aspects of the millennial generation being a bit more focused on it is that we're talking about it more and they are a little less spooked. They are demystifying mm. some of this. And maybe that is actually a really good trend, right? Yeah. You know, there was, when we were talking about this on the air, there was a woman, and I kid you not, I thought this was a joke at first. She said that she is separating from her husband just on paper so she can reap the benefits of being a single parent when her kid goes to college, which I think is in the next mm. few years. Now, really... I thought she was kidding. I'm like, there's no way you are really going through the divorce so you can reap the benefits. Oh, yeah. It's financially the smart thing to do. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to throw a little salt on that. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't matter because for the for for financial aid, both parents incomes are considered part of the game plan. So, you know, too bad. Even if you're divorced, when you're filling out that FAFSA form you got to get your ex's social security number. They're going to pull tax records. So it doesn't matter. What about when you do remarry? Now, does financial aid factor in three incomes? Does yes. that work? Oh. Yeah, it does. Actually, all the money gets factored in. The government wants to know all sources. So, yeah, you're looking at completing these forms and putting in the birth parents and the step parents as well. So, yeah, it can get really thorny. And especially if you have bad relationships with your exes, it's even more cumbersome. And I have to say, sort of daunting for folks who just don't really want to deal with their exes to have to go in about this stuff. Yeah. And then you get into a lot of 
really tough conversations like is that really all you make like i'm not asking you to re to restate our divorce decree this is for our kid you know it can get very ugly it's probably why a lot of people are like Ugh, i'm just not going to fill out this form because i can't ah, deal that's okay. what it really becomes a barrier to entry here's a here's a more a, a sort of a, a sadder but um skeevier thing that mm. people do when mm. it comes to that is that some people who make a lot of money will just maybe they're self-employed they'll take a much maybe they'll defer jobs so they're like let's say fafsa opens right now and there's somebody who's out there who's a contractor might say like well you know what i won't work for the last quarter of the year and i'll just take less income and then i'll qualify for financial aid i think that's a huge mistake i think that we get ourselves into a lot of trouble trying to finagle the system so whether it's college, financial aid, qualifying for Medicaid for older people, I think for most of us, just play it straight. You know, you'll you will get what you get and you'll move on from there. And when it comes to the idea of single versus marriage, you know, I, I, I think that it is not it's really about your comfort level. And if you don't feel comfortable because you don't feel financially secure enough to make this decision, then don't do it. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. But you're probably not emotionally really ready either. One time I knew a couple where um, this guy says to this woman, my friend's sister, says, oh, you know what? I'm just not the kind of guy who's going to get married. And uh, my friend tells me this. I said, I, don't th I think he forgot a couple of words. She said, what do you mean? I said, I think he meant I'm not ready to get married to you. Because, of um, course, eight months later he got married oh, to someone else. Yeah. The finances shouldn't stand in the way. I don't think so, right. so. It's yeah. like, you know, you ever hear, you have a kid, right? Yeah. You got a couple kids? Yeah. If I said to you, were you ready financially to have children? I mean, nobody says yes. It's just like, it's a nightmare. All these crazy things happen. If you wait till you're financially secure enough to have children, we would have like a zero population growth. People just are, you know, you can try to do the best you can, but that can't be the only reason about having kids. What is your take on separate accounts versus joint account? Because that's another battle in relationships. Um, this one I'm very clear about, which is I think that separate accounts are fine. I think that most most couples, they that even when you have a non-working spouse, that you need to have some money in your own name, even if it's just money that's sort of split jointly, just so your spouse isn't like looking over your shoulder about everything you do. I don't think you should hide accounts. I think that's always scary when you get those financial infidelity um, mm -hmm. reports. I'm sure you've seen those mm -hmm. all the time. Like, you know, half of Americans have a secret credit card, debit card, or bank account they don't tell their spouse about. Like, really? Do we need to do that? That seems like a silly thing to lie about. Yeah. But, you know, if you feel comfortable... My sister didn't work um, outside of the house for a number of years, and she worked uh, had a had an account that was her own when she did work. And she was like, eh, I'm not merging that into anything. I like to have a little bit of my own money so he doesn't see everything I'm doing. I don't think she'd go crazy. I think you should have an agreed upon amount like, hey, let's not bug each other for spending less than, I don't know, $300 on something. But if it's going to be more than that, let's talk about it. But I think it's good. It works for however, you know, how it works for you. I know a lot of couples, especially folks who get married later in life, what they do is they maintain separate accounts and then they have one joint account. They both contribute to it. OK, so now when you're getting married, another tip for a lot of people, and I know a lot of, of women specifically have dealt with this when their spouse passes or if they get divorced and they didn't build up enough credit on their own, which they assumed the credit mm. card was under their name too. What can you advise there? 
Well, I mean, I think that for many people, just being aware of a credit record and history is important. And I know you talk about this, I'm sure, a ton on the pod, which is go to annualcreditreport.com and pull up your credit report. If you see like no history, that's going to be weird. So if you have a history, I don't think people should have joint credit cards. I think you should have a credit card in your own name and you can certainly do that. Most people have a joint mortgage because they can't afford to actually apply with just one income. <laughs> so that sort of becomes more natural. But you you don't need to have joint credit cards. You should have a credit card in your own name that you use every so often. You pay the bill off every month. But annualcreditreport.com will tell you where you stand. It's not going to tell you what your joint credit score is. There is no such thing. It's yours unique, your unique score. And you should know that. And you should try to really pay attention to how to build up a, a, a solid credit history. Now, the good news is that for a lot of people who f- do find themselves in that situation, that you know what, uh, you probably don't need so much credit. You know, you're not going out and buying a new house when you're, you know, if you if your spouse dies and, you know, you're 82, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you should be on top of it. Isn't it annoying how many things that you and I tell people that they have to be on top of? It, I think that's why so many people shy away from finances because it feels overwhelming, all these little things. Don't you agree? I know. Yes, I do. However, I'd like to put it in the category of like doctors, right? Like you go and you get an annual, you go and you get your teeth cleaned, you yeah. go and get this. It, it's just, If we kind of make it more in that, like there's five things I need to think about and that's what I need to think about. Yeah. Or one thing, just go buy my book. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my God, your book is so fantastic. Dumb things smart people do with their money. When you're reading through these stories, you're like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. That's right. We're all, we all make these mistakes. We all have the, look, we are, we're human beings. So our cognitive bodies, right? The the stuff that's happened over millennia, which is like how we develop as human beings, do not actually make us really good about long-term decision-making. And financial stuff is all long-term decision-making. So all we're trying to do is get you into a habit of automating things. So, you know, like my doctor just called me, just sent me a note. Oh, it's time for your mammogram. Oh, okay. Like I get nudged, right? Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I'm psyched. I want to get my boobs no. squished. Yeah, you know, like, woo. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. But <laughs> that doctors, and the colonoscopy. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I mean, so, you know, it's good to get a nudge. The thing is with financial stuff, Unless you're working with somebody and it's expensive to hire a financial advisor, you need to sort of create your own nudges. And that's why it's this stuff becomes very difficult. Like, what can we do to automate as much of this as possible so that, you know, there's in, instead of like the doctor sending you a card, there's a little thing, um, reminder that pops up into your calendar and it says, um, check annual credit score, you know, check annual credit report or um, it's the quarter end. Oh, Check 401k, just make sure to do this. You know, so there's a few things you could almost like nudge yourself. And that's when I find people are most successful in sort of keeping this stuff right sized because otherwise it gets a little bit out of control. All right. Anything year end, because we are approaching that, which is crazy to say that, that we should make sure we do now. There's a sweet spot when I really want people to do this. Okay. But uh, I'll tell you what, we can do a little first things first. Let's just do a quickie here that it's open enrollment is about to start for most oh, companies. Yes, yes. Okay. So a hundred more than 150 million Americans get their health insurance through their companies. 
That's a lot. And also we're going to have open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act, which is November 1st. And we have open enrollment for Medicare. So for people listening, if you're over 65, you're getting those notices. It's open. Open enrollment begins for Medicare. So that said, uh, I think the first thing you could do just before the year ends is to just double check all your benefits. You're spending a lot more money on health care, no mm-hmm. matter what. Mm-hmm. Right. Deductibles are higher. Co-pays are going up. So it's expensive. So see if there you can use something cheaper, better, more efficient in your plans. Then the second thing is you're going to use this as a nudge for yourself. Hey, how much am I putting into my retirement account? Could I go higher? Am I putting 6% in because that was the match, but I real I got a raise and maybe I could actually afford to go to 10%? Do that. Um, am I choosing auto rebalancing? Am I automatically rebalancing my retirement account just by uh, literally checking a box so they'll put your allocation in line. Great. So those are things around open enrollment that you should really be focused on. And then if you could do that, I mean, if you're, you could almost look at this right now and say, all right, it's October, you know, three quarters of the year is up. Um, Am I on pace to max out my retirement account? Maybe I can afford to increase my contribution to my retirement account because I'm not at 19,000 yet. I know a lot of people aren't going to get to 19, but maybe you could. Maybe you said I was doing, you know, 15,000. That's what I thought. Maybe you got a raise in the middle of the year. Maybe you didn't, but maybe your cash flow is better. Maybe your partner's cash flow is better. So maybe you see, can I actually increase my contribution level before the end of the year? So I max out at 19,000, 25 grand if you're over the age of 50. This would be a great time to do that. And we just had an episode really breaking it down, going back to the basics of the 401k. To reiterate what we said a couple of weeks ago, it's so easy to toggle it. Okay, if it felt uncomfortable because you notched it up a little bit, it's really easy to go back down if it really yeah. feels uncomfortable. right? Yeah. And, and you know what? Again, this is the beauty of being a human being. Chances are most people don't do that. They're like, nah, I'll figure it out. And they do. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Yes, you could. That's good. Yeah. But I'm bet I'm betting that yeah. absolutely you won't. You're the best. You. I just love you. You. Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst. You hear her on Jill on Money, her podcast, her radio show. You hear her on Spazano and Sandy every Wednesday. You're reading her book, Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. And uh, we can't thank you enough. Great to be with you. I'll do it again. Maybe we'll do like a special like December. Then we'll get we'll get into the real year-end stuff. Okay. How about that? That would be right? awesome. Thank you. You already right, committed. Love it. I love it. <laughs> so next week on the podcast, Lisa Powers will be with us again. She is our go-to elder law attorney at Harris Beach. So she'll be on next Friday. You have a fantastic weekend, and we raise a glass and say cheers to being financially confident women. If you have a personal finance question or feedback about the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to Sandy at sandy at rochesterbuzz.com. New episode every Friday. Listen, subscribe, and tell a friend about the 7 Figures podcast. Smart money strategies for women.